Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. I'm your host, Tom Caffarella, and I've got a very, very special guest on today, Clayton Morris. Clayton, what's going on today? Oh, not much, man. Good to see you. Good to see you. Finally, we've got some nice weather here on the East Coast and uh, sun. It's, it feels like winter dragged on and on and on. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy as a clam. Yeah, it was it was a long one, but I mean, at the end of the day, we're used to it being in this part of the country. So, um, so you've got really a completely different story than every other investor because it's funny. I have real estate investors on here every week, and a lot of us have a similar story. But now yours is totally different. Tell us a little bit about how you first started to get into real estate investing. You know, I I grew up with a lot of sort of like negative associations with money, and I and uh, so I, I you know heard my parents always saying, "No, we're not the Rockefellers. Money doesn't grow on trees." And so that was that, that informed my childhood that that constant, uh, you know, you know that we're not worthy of money sort of informed my childhood. And after college, I moved out to the West Coast, moved out to Los Angeles, and tried to to start working in the TV business and didn't know what I was doing. I was crazy going to the number two market in the country. But, you know, I was renting and I was there for about two years or so and then moved to Montana as a political reporter for CBS News. And it sounds glamorous, but I was making like $23,000 a year and renting. I I think it's interesting that you say that because I think everybody that sees people on TV thinks they're making millions and millions of dollars. And it's simply not true. I mean, you know, if you, and and have some pity on some of those local news people. Like if you watch John Oliver on HBO and he does that and now this, and they go to like local news celebrates, you know, St. Patrick's day and they flash to all these different local news people. I mean, they're not making very much money. Um, You know, you, you, you work in that environment because you want to move up, right? The goal is to move up. And I, you know, grew up sneaking downstairs watching David Letterman and Johnny Carson and wanting to do late night television and stand up comedy and those sorts of things. So that was sort of my passion. But man, you're living in Montana, you're making no money. I mean, I think I was paying 550 bucks a month to live in this like nice, like queen, uh, 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 old, old building, an old house, this beautiful old, like, um, uh, house near the Capitol building. But I was re- And I think my rent was five fifty, and I was making 500 a month. So I was literally going into debt like every month, you know, just what, what, living What year there. was this? What this year was this? 2000. Yeah. Cause I moved there just after, uh, Y2K in 1999. I moved there and I started, uh, started working there, but you know, I mean, I guess I, I kind of got into real estate then because that's when Rich Dad, Poor Dad came out, I think in 99. Mm-hmm. And I, I started trying to reframe my thinking around wealth building. And it didn't hit me then, but I was like laying the groundwork consciously uh, or unconsciously, um, you know, about, about how to build wealth over that time. But as I moved around the country in the TV business, I was renting from people. You know, like when I lived in Helena, I never even saw the owners. I was mailing a check off every month to somebody in Missoula, Montana, two and a half hours away. So this idea of this sort of hands-off, I'm mailing a check to somebody, I'm taking care of their house, I'm living there, and you know, and they're cash flowing this property. That's what kind of when the groundwork started to be laid for me 
that I knew that there was maybe something bigger, smarter, better than the way that my parents had done it. So your, your kind of immediate dream was to become like Johnny Carson, David Letterman type. What, at what point did you say, maybe this path really isn't for me and I want to do something different? Well, 18 years later, I mean, I worked all over the country in the TV business and morning television and just moved my way up and up and up. And, you know, eventually I got to Philadelphia back home to my home city, the number four market in the country, and was there anchoring Good Day Philadelphia, the morning show. And I lost my job. I've, I witnessed my dad when I was 12 years old lose his job, and it crushed me. I was in tears. I, I was scared. He was scared. And I thought our life was over. And then here I was in Philadelphia losing my job. They didn't renew my contract because they wanted a, a show that was more serious news, and they brought me in to have fun and be the fun morning show guy. And mm-hmm. so when I got hired a week after I got there, my news director who hired me was fired. And so I had no internal support. And then eight months later, when my contract option was up for renewal, they said, uh, we think you were sold a bill of goods. We wanted to take the show in a more violent sort of hard news direction. Mm-hmm. And we don't think you're our guy. And I was like, oh, my God, you encouraged me to buy a house here in Philadelphia. Like, I'm back home. What? I'm out of it. You know, I went on antidepressants. I was just terrified. I thought my whole life was over. And I vowed right then that I would never have my life dictated to me by a boss, by somebody else. Now, what, I, year, what year was that? That would have been 2000, yeah, 2006 into 2007, like the fall of 2006, I think, into 2007. And I lost, they didn't renew my contract. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was, oh my God. And then the network called. So then the main network, the mothership, the number one network in the world calls and says, we'd like you to come up to New York City. We've got an opening on our Fox and Friends weekend morning show. And we've been watching you for a number of years and we'd love to have you come up here. I said, what? Didn't you guys just like fire me? And they're like, no, no, there's a big separation between church and state, like the local affiliates. We don't care about them. (laughs) Basically, we don't care about what they do in Philadelphia. We're the network. Come on up. And then I got the job. And, you know, 10 years later, I decided to leave television because of real estate. But in that 10 years is when I really started. I said, I'm never going to lose my job again and have my life dictated to me by a boss, even though, yes, I'm at the network now, making a great salary, network news anchor salary, I'm going to figure out how to build something for my family, legacy wealth for my family that's not going to be dictated to me by Rupert Murdoch somewhere. So you talked about the Rich Dad book coming out in 1999. And did you do you did you read it in 99, 2000? I did. I remember I was, I'd be up at two 30 in the morning driving into good day LA. I was a producer uh, in Los Angeles and I'd drive up the four Oh five freeway and I was listening to the audio book. And then the afternoons I'd leave at like noon and I would be driving kind of down the coast and by the, I'd go down to the beach, everyone's at work and I'd be sitting on the beach and I was listening to this audio book, um, on my little disc man, I think at the time. And, uh, it just, it, it's amazing to think you, you kind of don't want to admit it, but you feel like a little sad thinking, Oh, well, my dad kind of was the, was the poor dad here in this story. You know, he work hard, get a job, you know, have live in the house that you pay for. And that's the American dream. And that's how you build wealth and save a little bit of money in a 401k or something. And that's wealth building. And God knows we know how wrong that is. Yep. And I grew up with that. And it was, you know, it's kind of hard to admit it that, you know, I, I see my dad now, he's 83 years old and, you know, hug him and, 
but realize like he's, he's still in that same paradigm. He still lives in that sort of fear of money and that way of thinking. So from 99, 2000, from the day that you were kind of driving around listening to that audiobook to 2006, when you lost your job, did you actively do anything in real estate during those six years? When I, yeah. So, you know, living all over the country and Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, Montana, you name it. Uh, the show that I was working on was a morning show called The Daily Buzz. It was uh, uh, in 144 cities and we were in Dayton, Ohio. And they kept promising us that they're going to move us to a new studio in Florida. So we finally moved after two years to Orlando, Florida. It was, it was set in Lake Mary, which is north of Orlando. And I, right before the housing crash, maybe a year and a half to two years before the housing crash, you could get 100% finance. You could get like 105% finance. It didn't even matter, you know. Um, I bought my first uh, one-bedroom condo on a golf course with an HOA and I moved to Orlando and, you know, half the staff kind of bought property, half the staff kind of rented property. And, and, uh, that was my first piece of property. And, and I, I was like a 1970s style inside. And I did all the work myself, kind of like painting cabinets and ripping out an old like soffit or light box in the bathroom. It was like a wood, you know, wood light box. I pulled that out and redid the walls and put in new light fixtures and, uh, updated carpeting and cabinets and stuff like that myself. And then this woman who lived next door in the condo complex, she'd lived there for 30 years, smoked heavily. She passed away. And she lived in a two-bedroom unit. I never met her, but I did know that her, her, inherited, her kids inherited this property. And this was my first understanding of the power of sort of off-market real estate. Yep. Because they didn't want to list this thing because they knew they went in and it was, it was nicotine covering the cat. I mean, it was, it was heavy smoke damage. It needed a lot of upgrades. They just wanted to kind of – they flew in from like California – they just wanted to be done with this thing. Mm -hmm. And I basically made them an offer that they agreed upon. I was able to get 105% financing on that too, you know? And at nights I would go over there and work on that property. I did the same thing that I did on mine I put a new carpeting. I clean out the furnace, get all the nicotine smell, like try to really clean it out and paint it nicely. And I sold that property and my property literally right before the crash, about a week and a half before the crash happened. And so much so that one of the guys that bought my one bedroom unit, two different people bought them in the same week. Mm -hmm. He called up my realtor. He's like, oh, I just lost my job. Can I, can I sell it back to you? That's how bad it was. And I sold them and I made a good profit on both of them right before the crash happened. That was my first sort of off market flip, I guess. Yeah. So 2006, you got laid off. It's so interesting because so when I was in college, the, the reason I actually ended up getting an, interested in real estate investing myself is because when I was driving around, I was a pizza delivery boy back in 2002. And the book that got me interested was actually the audiobook Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I also <laughs> listened to that audiobook while driving around. And I also got motivating. And I also took a few years to do really my first deal. Um, so 2000, oh, and also I also got laid off from my job in 2008. So I didn't really start getting heavily involved in real estate investing until 2008, which is when I got laid off. Wow. So very similar kind of, you know, yeah, parallel paths here. So in 2006, you said, even though I got my job back, I'm going to figure out a way to make this real estate thing happen. So what happened over the next like few years and what was kind of your path from there? So while I was kind of fumbling around with the Orlando stuff, that was all, I, it was really fumbling around in the dark. I didn't, 
really have a plan of action at all. It wasn't until I lost my job in Philadelphia that, uh, um, and into that first year, 2008 or so, um, I didn't buy any real estate. I was kind of just figuring out what I wanted to do. But I had gone through like a foreclosure on a on a property that I owned in Orlando. I sold those two and I moved to a house, got my job in Philadelphia, but it I bought the best house in the neighborhood during the crash and ended up having to go through a foreclosure and uh, a judgment against me, which is awful. And I came into Fox one morning to buy uh, a cup of coffee in the commissary and my they said my card didn't work and it's a debit card. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. It's tied to my bank account. What do you mean it doesn't work? So I went up to my office on the 17th floor, right near 30 rock. And, and I log into my bank of America account and all my account is like flashing red, mm-hmm. all negative. Like yeah. I've got a deficiency judgment against me because of this foreclosure that ended up happening. It was awful. And so I had, I, my credit was ruined and I had to get creative about how I was going to get started in real estate. And I didn't know it, but over the next year, I started to kind of put a plan together and everything changed for me on this flight to New Zealand. I, uh, my buddy lives on the South Island of New Zealand and he invited me to come shoot photos with him. He's a, a world, like world renowned photographer. And he said, you know, come, come stay with me and shoot photos and take some time off. So my wife and, you know, was like, put the kids, she's like, okay, you can go not for long, but you can go. So I'm on this flight and it's a flight that changed my life. And 16 hour flight, you know, you're kind of groggy after waking up 15 hours later. I wish I would have woken up earlier and talked to the couple next to me that changed my life. They're in their fifties, mid fifties. We got to talking on descent, you know, or landing. And I, and they're, they asked me how long I was going to be in New Zealand. I said, I'm going to be there for five days. They're like five days. That's a short amount of time. I said, what about you guys? How long are you going to be there? And they're like, Oh, we're going to be in New Zealand for two months. And I looked at them and I said, what do you, they didn't look like they were retired. I said, what do you guys do that you can go to New Zealand for two months? And he looked at me and said, oh, I'm a real estate investor. Um, I said, what? You know, and I got my pen out. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Okay, okay. There's a reason I'm sitting next to you right now on this flight. He said, yeah, me and my partner, we buy, you know, properties in the Midwest and, you know, blue collar, sort of, you know, C plus, B minus neighborhoods. They're consistent cash flow, not very expensive. We'll pick them up, you know, 20, 25,000. We'll put 25,000 into them and, and overhaul them and get them cash flow. And that's what we do. He told me where he was buying. He told me what he looks for. You know, he's like, do not over upgrade a property. Don't put granite when you don't need to. Don't do all these additional things you don't need to make it a really great place for someone to live. I, I wrote down that formula that this guy mentioned to me on descent on this flight is the formula that I came back with a week later after this trip. And uh, my wife and I bought our first two properties um, in Michigan and have been two of my favorite properties ever since. And that's been the formula that changed my life. So that's where it all started on that flight. Now you bought properties in Michigan, but you weren't locating in Michigan, right? No, no. I live in, uh, I live, I live in Manhattan at the time in New York city. So what made you go to that specific location? Was it the exact location that he was telling you about? Yeah. He said that area, that neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods he mentioned to me. And, uh, and he said, you know, he gave me just like a criteria. He's like, look, and it's funny, this criteria has stayed with me ever since. And you even hear people like Alex Rodriguez talking about this same formula today. It's where you buy. You buy where there's like American-based jobs, where the infrastructure is not going to China, where mm-hmm. there are hospital systems, where you've got distribution centers, you've got a FedEx distribution hub. Like that FedEx distribution hub is not going to go to China, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the NCAA headquarters is not going to go to China. Um, that hospital is not going to go to China. And there are people, you know, the local school systems and all and all of that that need a place to live. 
and where you can add value in these neighborhoods. And so that same sort of formula and those neighborhoods that he told me about is exactly where I kind of went in and, and met with a distressed property realtor at the time. I don't even think they have them anymore. I don't even know. But um, I met with them. This was like right after the crash. And I bought like a short sale and a foreclosure. Good luck finding any of those these days. Um, But, you know, those were my first two properties. And it's been the same thing I've bought really ever since. So since then, since you did your first couple of deals, what is what have things looked like since then in terms of what you're trying to accomplish, what you've accumulated and what you're kind of looking to do now? Well, you know, this I bought those first two properties and they were they were cash flowing eight or eight fifty, eight hundred and fifty bucks a month. Eight hundred and fifty dollars um, a month for single families? Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. Well, what what were the numbers on them again? I think I bought it for twenty six, um, put about seventeen or so into the first one and roughly yeah. the same on the second one. I don't my wife has these on spreadsheets. Um So let's say you're all in on those for fifty. Yeah, Something roughly like fifty. Yeah, um, so eight fifty nine hundred. You know, one and uh, that's that was what the rent is still today. Um, so th- we had those cash flowing, but I still because I, I can't skip over this because it's so important. I think most people get so caught up in the the mechanics of of, of things with real estate. You know, it's sort of like the be, do, and have. It's like the three steps, right? It's the if you're not sure of like your why, first of all, why are you even doing this in the first place? Most people want to focus on the do. Should I buy multifamily? Should I get a you know mobile home park? Should I, you know, buy single families? And then they want to get right to the have. You know, it's like lottery winners, right? They go right to the have. They skip the being, like, why are you even doing this? Yeah. They skip the mechanics of it and they go right to having it and they lose it all. You hear yep. stories constantly, right? And so I didn't quite understand it, but my wife came downstairs one night I'm a network news anchor making a great salary. We've got these two properties cash flowing. And my wife says, we can't pay the mortgage this month. I'm like, what? And what are you talking about? We can't pay the mortgage. What are we doing wrong? What's happening here? And we were just, I had to like that month, I had to go through my closet and sell like an old camera on Craigslist. I had a, you know, it was, it was brutal. I was in tears about it. I just felt like such a failure. You know, I've got two kids at the time. We were sitting there and, and we just kind of looked up. We just opened a bottle of wine and we're just like, what are we going to do? And I said, wait a minute. The two properties that we've got that are cash flowing for us, what if we could figure out how many of those it would take for us to have a safety net where we would never have this conversation again about our mortgage? Mm-hmm. And that's where kind of the idea for what I called the freedom number came from. I was like, that's our freedom number. And so we just jumped up. I grabbed a Sharpie, you know, our dry erase marker. And my wife was like, okay, I'm going to go back and do in the laundry. I'm like, no, you're not. We just had like our eureka moment, you know, like about all of this. I said, okay, so wait a second. If we, if we had 10 of these, what is our monthly expenses? That was our main problem. We didn't know what our monthly expenses were. Yeah. We didn't know how far we were in the hole on any of this stuff from month to month, groceries, gas, you know, mortgage, all that stuff. What is that number? And then reverse engineer that based on the number of houses. So for us, it was like a $50,000 house purchase, cash flowing about 800, 900 a month. And we reverse engineered it and we, you know, figured out what our financial freedom number was. And we just wrote that down everywhere and we moved towards that goal. And now we had like a light. We knew what our why was. Like, this is the direction we're moving. Most people just kind of blindly want to get into real estate and they don't have any focus on what their numbers are. Mm. So they're like, I want to be a millionaire. Why? 
What if right. all it took for you to live financially free was 200,000 a year? Well, yep. you'd never have to worry about anything. Why do you want to be a millionaire? It's a totally artificial number. Yep. So, you know, that was for me, that goal, that moment there, you asked over the next few years, what it looked like those first two properties, figuring out that we couldn't even pay our mortgage. We were still sort of suffering from this stuff. It helped us frame the next, you know, six years of our life, having that main focus and goal. So over the next six years, the goal was to get to that, that freedom number. And were you able to hit that after six years? Yeah, we were able to hit it in like three years or a little bit less. Yeah, a little maybe less than four or so. And, you know, I'm still waking up at three in the morning doing morning TV. And in 2017, we had hit it, I guess, in the fall of like 2016 or so. Yep. And owning properties in Michigan and Indiana and other, you know, Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Florida and some other places. And we, I didn't need to get up at four in the morning anymore. Yep. And I was doing this morning show for 10 years. And, and I asked my wife, we're like, what, what am I doing? Given all the like political turmoil that we experienced and all this craziness. And I had to go on and talk about what tweets were being sent this morning and what kind of craziness. And it's like, the show is not fun anymore. Yeah. It was not the fun show that when I first started years ago, where we could talk about cultural things and have some fun and, you know, and, and now it's all politics and it's now all this sort of vitriolic nastiness where if I say one thing wrong that who disagrees with me, I get a death threat email or tweets that are like, you're, you know, burning hell, you know, and you know, my wife would get it too. It's like, I don't want this in my life anymore. And why am I still doing it? And when I got real with myself and I realized, okay, real estate has already taken care of us in this way. Why am I still doing it? It must be ego. Like, you know, I worked really hard to be in TV my whole life. Like, and maybe I shouldn't be anymore. And what will that feel like if I'm not on TV on the number one show in the country anymore? Like, and that was an ego thing. And once I got real with myself on that, like, you know what? That's not good enough. <laughs> I'm done. And I asked to, I asked to leave. Uh, I was to had two more years on my contract and we, we, uh, we agreed and parted ways. And I said, look, I'm, I'm just going to sleep in from now on on the weekends and got to be with my family from now on. Were they shocked? They were, they were very kind. And they asked me to, you know, they're like, well, if it's not that show, do you want to do another show? You want your own show, you know, and the, whatever. And I said, no, no, I, I appreciate that. I said, I, it's not about another show. I'm not going to go to CNN. I'm not going to go somewhere else. Um, you know, you're not going to see me on TV anymore. Mm. Um, I'm going to focus on my own YouTube channel and I'm going to do my own show, my own podcast and with my wife and I, I thank you. And uh, I think the other anchors, you know, to answer your question, there were a couple of other anchors who they were just because they, you know, even though they're news anchors, they still live in this like constant state of fear. You're only as good as your next contract. Let's take a quick break from the episode to get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors. Join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. Right. So yeah. Just like I experienced, that would seem like a really tough industry. I mean, I don't know too yeah. much about it, but just thinking about how you're kind of framing it, and it, it seems like something that you don't have a ton of control over. You don't, and you're only as good as how young you look, I guess, or how you know viable you are, and you know you're only as good as your next contract. And like I experienced in Philadelphia, they just decided to not renew my contract, right? Yeah. And they could have done that in New York, you know, at the network, and um, and so uh, you know. It, 
there's a lot of, there's still a lot of fear. I would see it among some of the other news anchors um, who are kind of coming up the ranks. They, like they would just be constantly available for any show that needed them on anything. You know, I'm going to go report on this. You need me to go here. Yes, I'll do it because they want to be, you know, you want to be, they want to please, they, they tie their sort of self-worth to their, to that contract. And that's fine. You know, I, I, I did that in the early days. Um, when I left though, one of our weather guys, he didn't even know I was leaving this particular morning on the last day on the air, it was Labor Day, 2017. So he was filling in, meteorologist, young guy, maybe like 32, whatever. And he uh, he had just started reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. Un, like, unrelated to me in any capacity. And he read a tweet by me saying I was saying goodbye. And they started looking into why. And he saw that I you know, did real estate and I was, you know, I'm passionate about finding your freedom number and all that stuff. And he's like, oh my God. So this book I'm reading on on rich dad poor dad it is possible and he Mm. came up to me and he pulled me aside and he's like look i can't he's like i can't believe it i can't believe it because you're doing exactly what i wish i could do right now Mm -hmm. and it was amazing to hear you know so yeah there was a different mix of uh, responses i think internally but they were all gracious it's just it's funny to see how people's frame of reference is around a job and a paycheck so one of the things i think people definitely want to hear about is because every time that you buy a multifamily, you need some sort of down payment, right? Mm-hmm. So now, were you just using any savings that you had to to you know accumulate more and more? How how did that actually go? Yeah, because I had that you know judgment and I had that deficiency deal that I had to deal with with this foreclosure. Um, you know, it, it was I had to get creative with how I put money together. And fortunately, you know, I had some money in savings. I had some money left over from an IRA. I had some money in savings. But basically, I was I had cash up front to be able to buy those first two Michigan properties. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did with the first two. But then my wife and I, you know, she worked at CBS News. So we had different – she hasn't. She had an IRA. She, I think she had a Roth IRA. I had a traditional – no, reverse that. Um, and, you know, we had some – she had some stock. We liquidated some stock. I borrowed from my 401k to buy real estate. Most people don't know you can borrow from your 401k, not withdraw from it and get a penalty. But, you know, so I, you know, a lot of people don't know that you can even do that. People think that you can't touch your 401k, that it's a sacred cow. And it's not true. It's your money, you know, and you can actually borrow from it. So that's what I did. I borrowed from my 401k and bought my, I think my third property. And it's a great strategy because you're paying yourself back as the bank. Mm-hmm. You are also then able to even put more money into your 401k. You only think, was it 16.5? Maybe they upped it to 17,500. I forget the numbers this year now, but by paying yourself back with interest, you can actually exceed the amount the federal government allows you to put back into your 401k. Every I year. did not know that. That's interesting. So you think there's that cap, but it's not if you are your own bank. Um, and then you set your terms. You know, you want to pay it back in 24 months. You want to pay it back. However, your you know fidelity, however it's structured with your your bank. Um, and so that was a killer strategy. I've done that a couple of times. I used my 401k to buy real estate. And adding to my net worth, pulling my own money out of my own bank, basically, and doing it. And I borrowed from my IRA. Uh, we did do some. We put a. We bought like ten properties at one time using uh, using private financing. Uh, so we put a chunk of change down on that, but then financed the rest of it. Um, so we always say there's not one, you know there's so many different tools in the tool chest, and there's so much money out there. People are so limited by their thoughts around money, but money is just a manifestation. Right. And the old saying, right, you either have money, you have a deal or, you know, people. 
So most people have access to maybe one or two of those things. If you don't have the money, well, then maybe you have access to the deal and you have access to the people. Well, then find the money. So you just got to be creative about it. But most people think that I don't have money, therefore I can never get involved in real estate. And you and I both know, and I'm not sure your story on this, but most people I know who've made it in real estate never used any of their own money. No, to build wealth. I, I didn't have any money to use. Wow. And, and so, you know, I started with $5,000 and $60,000 in credit card debt. So it just <laughs> wasn't a possibility. And, and I'm in Boston. And what I say to people is in, in order to really have a competitive advantage in real estate to start, you probably need upwards of 5 million plus anything below that. It doesn't give you much of a competitive advantage because you buy three, four, five, six, seven, eight properties in Boston, and then you're tapped out. So you're going to need to find a way to structure deals anyways. And the good thing about the market right now, where we're at in May of 2018, is there's a lot of people with money, and there's not a lot of great deals. Mm-hmm. So as of today, and this is really you know part of the, the economic climate today, um, having the great deal is, is really the value. So, you know, when we have a great deal, we're never out looking for money. We always have available people that want to lend to us or they want to partner with us on deals. Um, so did you use uh, the Burr strategy at all? Did you, did you refinance out any of them to parlay it into others? Or did you just keep going with the, the direction you were already in? No, we have a vacation home up in the mountains that we kind of bird a little bit. And we did some improvements on that yeah. and pulled some money out. But no, not on any of the on, on any of the properties that I've purchased, we have not done any refinancing on them. Interesting. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's something that we're looking at doing on a few of them right now, but we haven't done because some of the Michigan ones, you know, we're in the fifties. Now they're worth 90, you know? Um, so being able to pull those out, you know, so much, so many great things are happening in the Michigan market right now in the Midwest and all the money pouring into those areas, you're seeing some nice appreciation, which is not why I invest by the way, but it's nice icing on the cake. So, you know, if you're, you want to be, I would say to anybody who's thinking about this, and we talk to investors all day long in my office who say that they want to do the Burr method, but then they, they're attracted to the cheapest uh, property. And that's a, you know, the cheapest property, if it's below like that, if it's going to be in that 40K range, you know, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to pull, a, for a bank to come in and say, you know, give you a loan on that. They're going to want to be over 60K. You're going to want to be where there's retail comparable properties in those neighborhoods. And when you're below 60 and you're in the 50 and you're in the 40 range, there's going to be a lot of investors, thousands of investors who've bought those properties, but guess what? They're not public on the multiple listing service. They're all off market and therefore banks don't see those appraisal numbers and they're not going to give you favorable numbers to do a home equity line of credit or to pull money out on a refinance on those properties. So if you're thinking about doing the Burr method, try to go up above that 60, go to that B plus range, you know, of properties, B minus B plus where you're paying a little bit more, but you have retail comparables on the market that are going to yield those results when you go to pull that money back out. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. So I've bought some properties in Jacksonville, Florida, all under 100K. And even under 100K, we had some, you know, like 80, 90,000, we had some difficulty um, utilizing the Burr method just because of exactly what you said. Banks don't really want to do the deal. So we had to bundle a bunch of them together. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's a lot harder um, when when the purchase price is so much lower. Right. Yeah. And especially if you don't have the comparables in the neighborhood, when the only thing showing up as a comparable is some foreclosure that's not rehabbed, 
because it's bank, you know, it's on the it's on the multiple listing service for that reason for for a comparable property. It's a it's not going to help you. Right, right. So now you're teaching people how to do this, right? Yeah, we try to. You know, I think my wife and I, and our, on our YouTube channel, on our Morris Invest YouTube channel, we try to talk about really financial intelligence and financial you know education because when my wife and I talk about the family structure of the business, like buying a real estate is one thing, as you know, that's one piece of this puzzle. Mm-hmm. But what about your estate planning? What about your tax strategy? What about your legal protection? What about, you know, are you buying this in an LLC? Do you have a holding company that this LLC is reporting up to this holding company? And what state is that holding company in? Because guess what? If you get sued, it it really matters on what state you're in. Mm. All of those things are so valuable and important. And we never were taught any of that as we were growing up. So we spent a lot of time on our channel trying to teach people about creating financial intelligence and not being scared of money. One of my big missions, as you and I talked earlier, is around the idea of uh, overcoming those memes around and that fear around money. And it's incredible. I try, try to teach people that you know, the way you talk to your children around money, teaching them about creating, uh, buying, performing assets and not having a fear of the dollar and that you know, money is just a manifestation. If you think abundantly, money will flow to you. Um, so I try to teach that a lot in, in our podcast and, and in our YouTube channel. That's something I'm, I'm really passionate about. So I just found the the YouTube channel. You just put Morris Invest into YouTube. What about the podcast? What is the name of the podcast? It's a very generic name. It's called the Investing in Real Estate Podcast with Clayton Morris. My wife keeps saying you got to add my name in there too because she joins us on. We do it three days a week, but she's she joins us on Wednesdays to talk around the family part of wealth building and planning. And then I usually have an expert on one day a week and then sort of a, a smaller sort of motivational episode. Yeah, it's just the Investing in Real Estate Podcast with uh, with my ugly mug. So what's the best piece of advice you could give to somebody who who wants to get started in real estate? Well, you know, you first got to know what your why, start with your why. You know, you want to get started in real estate, but it, know what your why is first. That's your compass. That's sort of your internal compass. Is it because, and I say this on my podcast, I have so many people that we talk to in my office who say, that's me, which is, are you tired of driving two hours to and from work? And not being able to see your kids. Like one guy told me, he's like, I get home at seven o'clock at night. My kids wait up for me for a few minutes just so I can say goodnight. Mm. And then they go to bed. And then he has like a glass of wine and dinner with his wife. He doesn't get to see his kids. Yep. And he leaves before they go to school. Yep. Is that your why? Understand what that is. Figure out your compass first. And then the I'm going to invest in mobile home parks, single families like Clayton. I'm going to buy multifamilies like Tom. You know, it doesn't really matter. Figure that out first. And then take action on it. You're going to sit there for two years. Guess what? Two years is going to pass. You're still not going to own a property. Start making offers. Start getting out there and taking action. What's the worst that's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? I got started um, 25 years old. And that was after wanting to get interested. I was interested for three or four years before I got started. And I didn't know where to start. And I think for a lot of people, they read a rich dad, poor dad, or they listen to a podcast and they, they just don't know what to do from there. They don't know what the first step is and they get tripped up and all that good stuff. But like you said, you've got to go out there. The key is to getting great deals. If you get great deals, you can find the money making offers. You talked a lot about off-market deals. How are you finding off-market deals right now? Yeah, I, I feel like I used to do a lot of wholesaling when I was in, you know, living in New Jersey. So I would do a lot of wholesaling. Um, mm-hmm 
you know, some of my first properties I bought off market from, they were on the MLS. And actually a lot of people are finding just good deals right now on the MLS, surprisingly enough, yep. um, you know, through a realtor. Um, you know, I did a lot, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on direct mail um, back in the day, especially in New Jersey when I was doing a lot of wholesale deals. Um, so direct marketing is, a, is a, still a fantastic way to do it. Just getting on the internet, the first few deals that I ever did, just calling on Craigslist for sale by owners, just calling. I would make 30, 40, 50 calls a day mm-hmm. and just finding deals. They're there. People say you can't find them, that they're, they're full of it. You can find them. Um, a variety of ways. I have people bringing me deals all the time, you know, I'm sure like you do. Like, uh, so I've, you know, our acquisitions team finding them that way. Um, and a lot of wholesalers, I rely on the same, you know, the same sort of structure that I did a number of years ago and wholesalers bringing me deals. If you bring me a deal and there's good spread in it, I'm able to, you know, have a good ROI on the back end after I rehab it, I'll pay you for it. Um, and that's the way we do it. And you, you also have a turnkey business, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what does that look like? First, first, can you explain kind of what turnkey is for the people who don't know what turnkey investments are? So I kind of fell backwards into this a number of years ago. I started buying properties myself and my mom kind of came to me and said, hey, I'm, you know, I, I have 40,000, 45,000 to invest out of my 401k. Could you help me get one? And I said, sure. And I had some of the mechanisms in place, like finding deals off market and so forth. And I had a good construction team that I would, you know, my one contractor in Michigan was a friend of a friend. And uh, I said, sure. She's like, you're going to have to do everything for me because I don't know what I'm doing. Like, no, no, and I've got a good property management team that we work with. And it just kind of grew from there. It was like friends and family coming saying, I'd like to buy one. I'd like to buy one. And just kind of grew from there. We kind of tried to keep it small, lean and mean. And then over the years, over the past few years, it's grown pretty big. Um, and we're in a couple markets. We're in the Michigan market, Indiana market. So honestly, turnkey is if you if you are the type of person who likes to get you know watch HGTV shows and go out there and swing hammers and put up drywall and do the work yourself and be really hands on with everything, then it's not for you. Turnkey is really for the person that wants to pick up five properties. They're a busy doctor, whatever they are, um, and who wants to buy five properties, cash flow you know between eight and twelve percent return. Um, you know, in their personal portfolio, have it handled for you that it's rehabbed by a team and it's cash flowing by a property management team. There's nothing as pa- there's no, there's no such thing as passive income, right? You still have to make sure that you're doing your taxes properly. You're overseeing your portfolio of properties that they're performing, but you're not having to swing hammers. You're not having to go out and find tenants. You're not a landlord yourself where you're taking phone calls at 10 o'clock at night from someone who's interested in moving into your little bungalow, your three-bedroom bungalow that you own. So it really, it becomes a hands-off process. And that's kind of where the turnkey idea comes from. Uh, but right. it's not passive. It's not passive. You still have to be in charge of your portfolio. Well, let me, let me flip that around on you. So, so you've, you've hit um, your, your income number every month from your passive income portfolio. Mm-hmm. How many hours a week, let's say that you, you didn't do anything else and you just had to manage that, how many hours a week would that take you as of today? That's a great question. I'd have to ask my wife because she kind of handles the the spreadsheets and making sure that the rent's coming in. She'll tell us, hey, the 10 that we own in New Jersey, two of them were going through eviction right now. And she'll just kind of go back and forth with the property management company on that. I would say total, now that we have the pieces in place with our attorneys, with our accounting team, because that's incredibly important. Once you put those pieces in place, you get your trust set up, you get your LLC structured properly, you have those in calls with your insurance company and you get your, maybe an umbrella insurance policy. Once you get those pieces in place, 
then maybe an hour to two hours a week, kind of looking through, making sure that things are burning and churning. But you really shouldn't have to be sitting there knee deep in all kinds of papers um, every week. An hour to two hours a week is honestly, I think, what we even spend. And that might be even, uh, might be even pushing it. By saying so, so, much. so very close to passive, right? Almost, almost right. passive, almost passive. Yeah, it's, hey, it's, you, you it's better than waking those. up at three in the morning doing a morning show for sure. Well, well, we're we're talking about right, like people driving two hours to work, two right. hours back. You're talking about two hours per week, and I'm assuming you could do those two hours from anywhere in the world, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, because you're just getting an email from a property manager that says, "Hey, we had to fix a toilet on one, two, three, you know, Main Street." Okay. Go ahead, you know, 25 bucks, 30 bucks for the plumber. Wonderful. See you. See you later. You know, or not even because guess what? If you had to do that yourself, if you were the landlord and having to field that phone call, call a plumber, get on the phone, find a plumber that could pay for it and do it, then you're actually doing the work. But if you've got a property manager that you're paying 10% a month in property management fees, great. They're going to do it and not even bother you unless it hits like a certain threshold. Maybe it's $200, $300 and anything above that, they'll call you about it. Hey, we've got a problem on this furnace. Anything under that, don't bother me. Don't even call me. I don't care that there's a cat stuck in the furnace. <laughs> like, you know, deal with it. Yeah. So you talked about Rich Dad, Poor Dad being the book that got you started. I talked about it being the book that got me started. You met Robert Kiyosaki, right? Mm-hmm. What was yeah. that like? You know, it's it's great. We've become, uh, you know, as friendly and as good of friends, I guess, as you can be from a couple thousand miles away. But I was just uh, I was just with him about a week and a half ago for a few days uh, at his place in uh, in Arizona. Um, you know, we've had lunch together a couple times, and he he was on my old show. He he was just actually on a podcast uh, on my podcast uh, this week as well. Um, it's great because he he likes to say he's not a real estate guy, and he'll say, you know, Clayton, you're a real estate guy. I'm not, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a cash flow guy. Mm-hmm. And it helps you think about that, right? It's he's, he doesn't want cash. He's like, cash is, cash is the thing that is the enemy. If you're going to hand me a $200,000 check. I'm going to be angry about it because I don't want to have to pay the taxes on it. Mm-hmm. So he's so focused on not paying taxes with, re- but using real estate as his vehicle and he's got gold and other things. But it's, it's just fascinating to hear his take on it. He's, he gets so passionate and so angry about the school system yep. and about the way that we're taught. And it really makes me think about my kids and like where, you know, is college worth it? You know, it helps you really think about those things, you know, or is it I'd rather just teach my son and daughters that, look, passive income, buying performing assets, that's what else is there? And then you can go live your passion. You want to be a woodworker? Great. Have those assets performing for you and then go work in a barn all day and make make tables if that's what you want to do yeah um so yeah it's been great to become friends with him and some of his uh, rich dad team like uh, rob uh like ken mcelroy and, and tom wheelwright so we're at a point now where the real estate market's pretty high right where where do you think we're gonna go what's your predictions over the next year or two years or three years well I guess you could look at some of the data right now. We're seeing this incredible demand for new construction, right? Mm-hmm. And home builders are just, they can't even keep up with the demand right now. 
So you have a lot of these millennials who weren't buying before and now who are buying, they were renting. So you had all these condos that were being built in New York City and Miami and other things with all these really nice amenities like a pool and bars and all this kind of stuff. And now it turns out that these millennials aren't terribly interested in those. So they've overbuilt these condos with all these fancy amenities. And these millennials are wanting to buy new construction homes in these you know, nice sort of outer city areas. Um, and I, I think we're seeing that demand for new construction. We're seeing a, a huge move right now for multifamily that, you know, people are excited about a 3% return or a 4% <laughs> cap rate on multi, like large multifamilies. Yeah. I see a lot of the multifamily players right now are sitting back saying they're, they're not buying anything right now. They're selling or they're waiting. They're waiting for a crash to come in the next year. And they're going to go swoop in and buy as much as they can. So a lot of these guys right now are just sitting on a whole boatload of cash. Mm. Um, also, I see right now in the commercial space, speaking to a lot of commercial developers, this is really fascinating because I knew, I knew nothing about this space. And this is why I think if you can buy near these locations, residential or commercial, you're going to be in a good place. But what we're seeing in the commercial development space right now is they're tearing down multi-story office buildings and they're putting single-story distribution centers. There is such a demand for single story warehouses right now, like Amazon needs and all of these other brands that you don't even think of, not like Amazon or un, you know, just like Amazon, but different that you might not even think about. All these boxes being delivered to you and me, they need these distribution centers all over the place. So they're tearing down these larger office buildings and they're putting in single story warehouses. And if you can be buying residential near those spaces, buying other commercial uh, livable spaces near those distribution centers. I think that that's, that's where we're seeing the market shift right now. And I don't see a bubble. I don't know. I don't see the same. I don't know about you, but I don't see when people talk about a bubble, it's still incredibly difficult to get a mortgage. Interest rates are going higher. It's more difficult than ever to get a mortgage. So not a, like the fundamentals, the, the same things that we saw in the crash are not there. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I feel the same way, but the prices have come up so much. My my thinking is always, is there something that we're missing right now? Is there something that's going on? Because a, a lot of times people miss what happened the last time. And so the next bubble and how this bubble kind of bursts, maybe it's not the same. It, you know, the the things that, that kind of blew up this bubble are a little bit different probably than the last one, right? We didn't have right. mortgage rates that were this low. So I'm wondering if this next crash is going to look a little bit different and the things that ended up, you know, pushing this bubble to the top um, manifest itself in a different way. Well, Jim Rickards, who's a friend of Robert Kiyosaki, he was out in the Rich Dad offices uh, the, like the same week I was out there and visiting. And he he is one of the smartest people you'll ever meet. And if you read his most recent book that just came out, it's called The Road to Ruin, The Global Elite's Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis. And the guy is brilliant talking about, you know, look, fiat, the fiat currency, which is what a government, you know, government currency is, it's, it's controlled by the government. It's a disaster waiting to happen. So if you're invested in government currency, the dollar, look at what happened in Greece, if that's making up the bulk of your portfolio, the government can do anything it wants to with that money. It's, right. it's, it's not backed by anything. It's not backed by gold. It's not backed by anything. That we are on the verge of a major collapse. So that's mm -hmm. why you need to invest in things that are real, like real estate. 
or, you know, or soil or gold, um, actual items instead of this pie in the sky fiat currency that people are so invested in. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So if our listeners want to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, you can visit my website, just Morris Invest, just my last name, Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, morrisinvest.com, or just come listen to the podcast. If you're a fan of podcasts, obviously listening to this and watching this, um, just the Investing in Real Estate podcast with Clayton Morris. And uh, we have just a ton of archives there, a lot of content that we try to treat it as like an encyclopedia for you to kind of go back and learn about tax strategy and how to set up your LLCs properly. We're trying to treat it as uh, like a book, a reference guide that kind of lives on evergreen for you to use as material to help you on your journey. That's awesome. I, I actually got to start thinking about my podcast that way. A lot of times it's kind of disjointed and we have different guests on, but I, I like the fact that you can go back like that. So that's awesome that you did that. Very, very, very motivating story. Uh, I want to thank you for, for coming on today, Clayton. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor, and especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.